Everyone loves a good treasure hunt. The thought of being the one to finally reveal the long-lost location of buried gold, silver, rubies, or precious artifacts after decades or even centuries make our hearts quicken and breath shorten. Just imagine dusting off the dirt to reveal a cache from times long past. Exposing riches to the first rays of sunshine in years is enough to get most anyone excited. The thrill that comes with striking it rich is exciting, but the thrill of solving a mystery is almost intoxicating. That is what keeps people across the world and throughout the generations scouring the earth for what others carefully tucked away. Sometimes these treasures are found by complete happenstance, by someone simply walking through the woods. But many of these finds are located after years of extensive research, by teams or individuals who take breaks from their own lives in the present to retrace the footsteps of someone else, by people who imagine themselves in another time, in another mind, in order to understand just where someone they've never met may have stashed their most prized possessions. By doing this, some of these time travelers get rich, but others die trying. Welcome to National Park After Dark. I think I speak for everyone listening when I say thank you. I love treasure episodes. This is so exciting. They are super like lighthearted comparatively. I don't know. You said we usually die. (laughs) The last thing you said. Okay. Some people die trying. So I don't know if lighthearted is the right word. (laughs) Comparatively. That's the caveat. But it's so funny because I know there's a very small selection of people right now listening that just got a kick out of the get rich or die trying little thing at the end there and I named the title that did you yeah so um I love that do you do you have any idea of what like the first thing that comes to mind with that get rich or die trying 50 cent yes (laughs) yes that is a classic that was my (laughs) first concert was it 50 cent was your first concert 50 cent and g unit in hartford connecticut when i was 12 years old my dad took me (laughs) your dad is a legend by the way just all the stuff (laughs) it was a time i should have definitely not been there yeah in no way should i have ever been there um we got general admission so we're just in this like mosh pit mosh pit he's like throwing you in the air to like other families literally there's no families there that is not right right it's not a family outing but it was just so funny. And I remember, of course, classically, we're late. Um, and we par- like we couldn't find parking near the venue because the concert was like already kind of in full swing. Mm-hmm. So he decided to park at a McDonald's. And I'm like, even at 12, I'm like, this is a bad idea. Like, I've been a rule follower forever. And it made me wildly uncomfortable. <laughs> and I'm like, this is such a bad idea. And he's like, it's fine. It's fine. So he took me and my cousin AJ at the time. And well, he's still my cousin. But so we go there, come back from this crazy concert. Like, it's the first time that I was like exposed to like people smoking weed and doing drugs and like... <laughs> Mom, obviously I'm fine. Don't be mad, Dad. <laughs> and we get back to the McDonald's parking lot. Toad. Car is nowhere in sight. We're in the middle of Hartford, Connecticut, which is a really rough place to be. 12-year-old you is like, I knew it. I, I knew it. it. <laughs> <laughs> so we 
literally, I remember walking along like the busy roadway to go to the impound lot and it was just a whole fucking to do. And I just remember looking at my dad like, all right, well, I told you. And <laughs> thanks for a fun night, but I'm also frightened now. Um, but anyways, so get rich or die trying G-Unit. 50 cent thanks for the memories but we're going somewhere completely different we are not gonna be in connecticut we're going to alaska we're going back to alaska alaska is just such a hot spot for us yeah i mean we're gonna be there pretty much right after this episode comes out but also i just did the lake clark one too yeah i know so we're recording this obviously ahead of time i feel like we say that a lot because we're trying to do a lot of front loading to keep the content up while we're doing our travels but yeah Cassie and I are gonna be in Alaska for three weeks we literally leave this week and we'll be there almost the entire month of July amazing so we're gonna we're not gonna be anywhere near where our story is taking place today um because it is in a very very remote area of Alaska but it's also a historic story which is just my favorite although it's a little intertwined with some present day activity oh so our story today starts over 130 years ago in 1892 in the Bering Sea. Oh, it's I did uh, ate a blackjack episode up in that area. Is it, where was it again? Do you remember? Because there's the Bering Sea, but then we're going to be in the Aleutian Islands. It was the Bering Land Bridge National Preserve. Okay, yep. So different area, but kind of the same. With areas that are just so expansive, it's like you could be kind of in the same vicinity, but still a world away. Yeah, for sure. Captain. Gregory Dworkstov, a Russian-born pirate, was on the run from the law. Dworkstov worked for an illegal seal poaching ring called the Sealing Associates, which was operating within the Aleutian Islands. Ooh, already not a fan, but continue. Yeah, you shouldn't be a fan. <laughs> this is a chain of 14 larger volcanic islands and 55 smaller islands extending about 1,200 miles or 1,900 kilometers westward from the Alaskan Peninsula towards eastern Russia. The majority of the islands currently belong to the United States, but at the far western end, a handful of small islands known as the Commander Islands belong to Russia. The seal industry was booming at this time, and when the U.S. purchased Alaska from Russia in 1867, the territory came with a very profitable sealing industry, especially off of the Aleutian Island chain. Beginning in the 1700s, Russian seal hunters would enslave the local indigenous peoples of the Aleutian Islands from whatever location and specific island they were currently hunting on. Women and children were taken hostage as a way to get the Aleut men to help harvest furs for them. This practice was banned in the 1800s, but poachers were notorious for continuing to enslave indigenous people despite the law, among other law-breaking. And I won't dive too deep into the seal industry history, but it is worth noting that it was huge for over a century and even caused a different type of rush to Alaska, aside from the rush many of us are very familiar with, the which gold is the gold rush. rush. Oh. Jinx, double jinx. <laughs> People hang still out too do much. that. <laughs> you owe me a Coke thing? Yeah. We do hang, we hang out too much. <laughs> We're in different states, but we do hang out. We actually haven't seen each other in a really long time <laughs> in person. By 1868, hundreds of Americans poured into Alaska, slaughtering over 300,000 seals that season alone only stopping when salt stores ran too low and they could no longer preserve their skins before bringing them into the markets of the world. When the U.S. government heard of this free-for-all, they deemed the Pribilof Islands a reservation, restricting access to seal hunting to native subsistence hunting. 
So they were basically like, all right, we had no idea that you guys were just killing every single seal you could get your hands on. This is going to become a huge issue. So the indigenous peoples can continue their traditional seal hunting, but everyone else is like they started formulating a lot of rules and regulations and laws around the seal hunt so that the population wasn't totally eradicated. That makes sense. It's smart. When Alaska transferred hands, that may have shifted power in the area, but not the Russian interest in the fur seal industry of the area. As a result, a system of leasing hunting rights to various entities in an effort to make the hunt more sustainable was enacted and created. Rights to the hunting grounds exchanged hands between different countries and different commercial companies within those countries for years, but Dworkstoff was was not interested in doing things by the book. There was ample money to be made in this industry, and he was going to take advantage of that. He joined forces with an illegal seal poaching ring called the Sealing Associates, and this ring was kind of like a criminal syndicate, almost like the mafia, if you want to put it in that context, and it operated off of the southern coast of Alaska and throughout the Aleutian Islands. Fast forward to 1892, U.S. warships raided the fleet, Dworkstoff's fleet, off the coast of what is now Kenai Fjords National Park. Knowing that this altercation was one he was likely going to lose, he ordered all of the organization's most precious assets, which happened to be 3,000 pounds of gold, rushed onto his boat, which was the fastest in the entire fleet. He made an initial escape, but authorities were hot on his tail. He set sail toward the Aleutians, attempting to outrun the U.S. warships through the clusters of islands. All the while, as he was on the run, he was ordering his men to pack all the empty food tins and three-gallon milk canisters with the gold coins, which ended up being 150 containers in all. How much money does that equal today? Do you know? 365 mil. Wow, that is a treasure. It's a Big one, I know. Nearly 1,200 miles later, he reached secluded Adak Island and made landfall. He ordered his men off the boat and instructed them to bury all of the loot, leaving behind small, inconspicuous clues that he would be able to use later to pinpoint the location of the gold scattered throughout different locations. But this wasn't just his gold. The initial agreement made amongst the leaders of the Sealing Associates was to entrust Dorkstoff with its safekeeping and hiding, with plans to return to dig up the gold once the coast was clear and they weren't being chased by the authorities. There's always plans to return. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Things didn't go exactly as planned. After dropping the gold and fleeing from the island, his ship ran into bad weather off the shores of a nearby island, also a part of the Aleutian chain. Smashing into a coastal reef in near hurricane-like conditions, the ship sank, taking with it nearly all of the men aboard. Dworkstoff survived, but was quickly apprehended by authorities and imprisoned. Likely due to his ordeal at sea, he developed pneumonia and died in prison just weeks later, never revealing the location of the gold to anyone. Fast forward 50 years later, an Adak island has been completely transformed. World War II was in full swing, and the island was serving as a very important military installation for both the Army and Navy. At the time, the military bases that were constructed on the island were the westernmost bases in the entire nation. Located 1,400 air miles from the west coast of the U.S., Adak Island is actually closer to Russia than the west coast of America. So it is out there in the middle of the Bering Sea. The island was chosen strategically to 
to mount an offensive against the Japanese-held Aleutian Islands of Attu and Kiska. As a result, the 270-square-mile volcanic island became almost unrecognizable. Initially home to the indigenous Aleut people, the tundra landscape covered with grass, mosses, low-lying flowering plants, and berries was drastically altered by the presence of the military. Construction of the bases began in 1942, and the following year, while digging a path connecting two Quonset huts, which are steel structures, they have like a half cylindrical shape. They were used for storage, and there was actually thousands of them on the island of Adak during this time. A soldier unearthed a tin can, but this wasn't any old discarded food tin or piece of litter. This can was full of gold coins, worth an estimated $2.5 million, stamped with issue dates between 1880 and 1890. Why don't I ever come across anything like that? Well, are you out there digging or what? No. All right. (laughs) Get to it. (laughs) This was the first glimpse of Dorkstoff's stash in over five decades. And I'll post a picture because there is a picture of this soldier holding the can just brimming with gold coins. And it's in black and white, of course, but you'll get get the idea. Did he get to keep it? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, I would. He's part, you know, anytime you're in the military, like the military oversees everything, you're not on, you know, you're on the military's land and all True. That. I'd stash it away and then pawn it off for, even if I didn't get the full 2.5 mil, I'd, I'd settle for a mil. Yeah, even 50, less than 50%. Yeah, I would settle for that. Exciting as this find was, it remained the only discovery for years. It wasn't until 1959 when another gold coin stash was found during the construction of a housing project on the island in a completely different location, about a mile away from that first find. Word spread fast among the military personnel on the island as well as its residents. However, this was still an active base, and while the base was in operation, digging on the island was strictly forbidden. So everyone is stoked about this. They're like, okay, it wasn't a one-off. There's more, and we just need to go find it. And obviously, the legend of Dorkstoff is like, everyone knows. So they know there's more for real now. Mm-hmm. But it was a no-go to dig while the, the Army and Navy were in operation at the time. They're like, oh no, my shovel dropped really hard on the ground. Oh no, I dropped it my... It just happened. <laughs> <laughs> I just happened to uncover this. And at this point in time, so we're in 1959 at this point, the Second World War is over, but the island continued to serve as an important military base, becoming a Cold War naval air and submarine surveillance station. So it's still in operation. And it actually, on Adak Island, became one of Alaska's largest cities. Thousands of military personnel and their families lived on the island in cookie-cutter, prefabricated homes that were shipped, fully constructed, directly to the island on barges. There were schools, a hospital, restaurants, a movie theater, a bowling alley, a roller rink, playing courts for sports like squash, tennis, and basketball, and there was even a ski lodge and a McDonald's. The place was popping. McDonald's is everywhere. McDonald's knows no bounds, honestly. It's like, can you just fuck off from the Aleutian Islands, please? There's a place you don't need to be. It's funny because I think, I don't know when it was, but Vermont took a really long time to accept. Vermont was like one of the last states that accepted McDonald's into the state and still there's only a few of them there's only a handful in the bigger the larger populated areas you don't find them in small towns like i know in new hampshire you go to pretty much half the small towns and there's a mcdonald's sitting in the middle of it but vermont doesn't have that i'm not surprised because vermont is the last holdout for a lot of things Mm -hmm. i feel like 
I will say, though, Subway. Subway knows no bounds. Okay, can I just say, this is like my trivia, like my fun fact for (laughs) any time I pull something out. And I learned it in Food, Health, and the Environment, one of the classes in college that like completely changed my life. Mm -hmm. Subway is the most numerous fast food chain of all. That does not surprise me. Like there are more Subway locations than any other fast food chain. That does not surprise me at all. Everywhere you go, there's a Subway. There's a Subway in my town. And Everything is like farm to table here and there's a subway here. Uh, Yeah, go on any road trip, you're bound to run into a subway. Yeah. On, you know, every few hours. Doesn't matter where you are, there's a subway there. You can be, I can, I can remember being in different countries and being like, oh, there's the subway and not talking about (laughs) transportation. (laughs) (laughs) It's like kind of sad, you know. It's not even like, sorry, subway. I don't, don't sponsor us, I guess, but (laughs) it's not even good. It's not even fresh. What are you talking about? That's their whole thing. Subway eat fresh. Yeah. (laughs) It's disgusting. It's like, I'm sorry. I don't want to, I don't want to eat shredded lettuce out of a saran wrapped, like vacuum sealed plastic bag. Why? It's only a little brown. (laughs) Okay. All right. We're getting fucking off track. So anyways, even though Adak Island didn't have a subway, they had a McDonald's, which is a close second. And it was popping, it was a place to be, but it didn't last. Adak Island today is a very far cry from its heyday. The military closed and abandoned the entire installation in 1997, leaving nearly $3 billion worth of military assets to nature. And nature has not been kind to what has been left behind. Adak is notoriously harsh with persistent overcast skies, gale force winds capable of catapulting dumpsters across the roadways, has significant precipitation, frequent cyclonic storms, and fog that covers the island an average of 173 days a year. It's no wonder when the military ceased operation in the late 90s that people left, but not everyone. As of 2017, the census revealed 80 full-time residents on the island, and as of 2022, a mere 45 people call all of Adak Island home. So there's 45 people there right now. Or less. Tell me you don't like people without telling me you don't like people. You're like, mm, we're going to stay. <laughs> there are there are a lot of stories in Alaska, though, in remote areas around where there's small populations of people. We talked about it in Wrangell St. Elias National Park. In that area, there's a group of people, very small population, but who just love Alaska, the last frontier, living off the land and off grid and whatever. So we do see that in Alaska, but 40 people on a whole island we do it's just it's a little different because it's an island that's really really remote that doesn't have a lot of natural resources you it's extremely hard to live here and the island's infrastructure that was you know it was so great a couple decades ago. Mm-hmm. So many people were there. It had pretty much everything you needed. Pretty much all of that infrastructure now is in complete decay. There's only one restaurant that remains, and it's not McDonald's. The school, ranging from pre-K to 12th grade, has a roster of only a handful of students. The vast majority of the island's buildings, from the military barracks, people's homes, schools, recreation buildings, corporate offices, town records buildings, all are in complete ruin, complete with missing siding, collapsing roofs, broken windows, and blown out walls. Almost the entire island looks like a post-apocalyptic scene straight out of The Walking Dead. Salvaging and repurposing from abandoned buildings is common practice as shipping supplies to the island is wildly expensive and takes a very long time. For example, a visitor to the island in 2020 snapped a picture from one of the only stores still in operation on the island documenting the price of a 20 
24 pack of Heineken at $82. Wow. I could not pay $82 for Heineken. Maybe I could if I lived on Adak Island. <laughs> it's just insane. Like, and you're obviously more than welcome to look up pictures of Adak. Um, it's a beautiful island, but the, yeah, like I just mentioned, the the infrastructure, it, it does look like, like you don't even need, it would just be the perfect place to film a zombie movie or like a post-apocalyptic movie. Like you don't even have to build the set. It's just there. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at it now. Wow, there's so many buildings too. Well, and I think I mentioned it later on, but at its peak, the military base had almost 100,000 Army and Navy personnel there and then all of their families. Yeah, I'm looking at when I Googled it, one of the first things that came up is an article that says Adak Island, one of the world's most remote abandoned places. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, and then the National Park site for this pops up too. Adak Army Base and Adak Naval Operating Base National Historic Landmark. And that's where we are. Voila. So while the town deteriorated, Dworkstoff's legend remained. The residents of Adak didn't forget the two finds from the 40s and 50s. And when the military ceased operations in 1997 and the digging restrictions lifted, locals jumped on the opportunity to find the gold themselves. In their searches, people have unearthed old dog tags, old cans, and miscellaneous aluminum garbage items, but nothing more of the treasure has been found in over six decades. With 270 square miles of search area, ground that is frozen the majority of the year, and limited access to detecting equipment, the search went cold again. But the knowledge that 148 cans of gold worth an estimated $365 million remains buried under the surface of ADAC is almost torture. And in 2022, Tom Spittler, Adak Island's governor stepped up to do something about that torture. Tom grew up on Adak, and in addition to holding a seat on the city council, he became governor in 2012 with the goal of turning the community around, which had steadily started to decline decades prior. Tom loves the community of Adak and knows that it is at significant risk of dying out completely. With just 45 residents, Adak hangs on the verge of complete economic collapse. ADAC is a unique place that requires unique thinking, and that's just what Tom did. In a last-ditch effort to save his community and perhaps solve a centuries-long mystery, he launched a project like no other. He spent months putting together a team to find Dorkstoff's treasure, hoping to locate the remaining gold and use the proceeds to reinvigorate the local economy, fix the crumbling infrastructure, and save his community. After months of research, he put together a team of four, each with unique knowledge and abilities best suited to find the long-lost gold. If they were to succeed, 95% of the funds would be given directly back to the community of ADAC, and the remaining 5% would be split equally among the four members of the team. And if this story sounds familiar to anyone, it's because it is a Netflix series, and that is where I got the inspiration for this entire episode. Oh yeah, I remember you saying that actually. What is the Netflix series called? It's called Pirate Gold of ADAC Island. And it was, um, it came out last year. So it's not brand new, but it's pretty recent. I definitely haven't seen it though. I feel like I have seen an article talking about this before because I have heard of Adak Island and some of this sounds a little bit familiar, but I don't know the story at all. I had no information on this at all. Like I had no idea. And as with so many things, like this show got recommended my Netflix algorithm or whatever. It was like, you may like this type of thing. And I was like, I do like this. And I started watching and I watched the first episode and I was like, does this have a national park tie in? 
They all Please have a national park tie-in. And of course it does. So that's why I was stoked. Um, so I watched the whole series. It, I think it was eight episodes, six or eight episodes. Um, and I watched the whole thing in like a day and wrote down a bunch of notes and then filled in the gaps with other resources and research. And that's how this episode came to be. So if you want to watch the entire thing, I'm pretty much condensing it. <laughs> For you but it was it's like a any other netflix it's very um dramatized i love I dramatized say. are there fake reenactments of things there is not fake oh, i love <laughs> no, but there's very like just everything is like dire dun, dun, dun. yeah exactly <laughs> uh i love stuff like that i don't know lifetime is like my favorite channel so anything dramatic See, i don't I don't like that. Like sometimes, you know, when on Spotify, you can listen to podcasts or music or something at like a at double the speed yeah. or a faster rate. Like I that's I wish I could have watched this like that. I'm like, okay, let's just get to the point here. <laughs> you know what oh, I mean? Like it, it was slow moving because it was so dramatic. Yeah. I don't like repeating. There are the ones that repeat and they're dramatic and you're like, okay, like what, where are you getting? But I like dramatic noise and dramatic effects and I like reenact and especially if they're like shadowy and mysterious and like blurry reenact you know I don't know I just I'm all for the drama I guess well then you may like this series and I did too and in its own way obviously the story was very compelling just the fluff around it was just a little annoying but anyways it's a cool story so I'm going to tell you more about it cool the assembled team comprised of the following people Brian Weed, a.k.a. the techie or gadget guy. Brian has extensive experience finding treasure throughout all of Alaska, but his experience isn't just all that he brought to the team. He had access to and working knowledge of the best of the best in treasure hunting equipment. Not only did he have the top-of-the-line metal detectors, he brings other state-of-the-art technology to the team as well. This included ground-penetrating radar, which gave information such as the approximate shape and size of an object under the soil, and drones equipped with LIDAR, or light detection and ranging technology, that basically works by emitting pulsated light waves to create a very precise 3D map of the environment, and in this case, the ground, that can uncover aspects of the landscape located underneath the vegetation and topsoil layers to give them more information. Next is Dr. M. Jackson, aka the scientist. She's my favorite. She has the coolest background. Dr. Jackson is an accomplished geographer, glaciologist, and National Geographic explorer. Aside from her extensive schooling, she has given TED Talks, traveled the world studying glaciers and their impact on the remaining landscape with a focus on what physical and cultural impacts result in the unprecedented melting of glacial ice, and is the author of multiple award-winning books. She first heard of the Adak Island treasure when she was pretty young. Her father, John Jackson, worked for a time on the island as a welder, and she grew up hearing the legend of Dworkstoff and his lost treasure. Dr. Jackson's extensive knowledge of geology and landscape change brought the team invaluable insight into how the island has changed in the century and a half, roughly, since pirates first stepped foot onto this island. And not only that, there's obviously the natural changes that have hap has happened on the island, but it has also undergone drastic change from the military 
military operations, building the base and operating the base and the large community was that was the, once thriving there. Like it's a completely different place than it was in 1892. Sure. The team was rounded out by Jay Tumuth and Burke Mitchell, aka the Fabricators. These two friends grew up together on ADAC and have been chasing this particular treasure for over 30 years. The duo met in high school and that is when they heard the legend for the first time. Jay's grandfather was stationed here in World War II and was there on the base when the gold was first found. And remember when I said the military was like, hey, no digging, you can't do this. Um, mm-hmm. This pair did not care. When the sun went down, the shovels came out. And I they wouldn't were... care either for that much money. <laughs> I know, clearly, clearly. <laughs> and over the years, they hadn't had much luck. But by joining the team, they hoped that their luck would change. Knowledge of Adak Island and how to construct specialized gear out of the salvaged material throughout the island in order to make it into useful equipment for the operation is what they brought to the table for the team. With so much ground to cover, it would be nearly impossible to canvas it all meaning that the team needed to be strategic with their approach. They began by looking back on what they already knew, and that was the general location of the two initial finds. With the mindset of thinking that where there was gold, there was bound to be more gold, the team set off to start digging in the area of the initial find, the 1943 find, in an area called Sweeper Cove. The exact location of where that tin was found is unknown, but they were able to narrow it down to where it may have been because the soldier was digging those pathways between the Quonset huts at the time of the find, so the team used LIDAR to construct a map of the area that showed the remnants of those paths underneath the earth. Because they're no longer there, obviously, just looking at it, but using that technology, they were able to see where some of those paths were. That, with comparing photographic images and maps circa the 1940s, they sectioned out an area to start scanning with their metal detectors. Seems like a pretty logical cut and dry plan, but there's another slightly larger consideration, and that consideration would be bombs. The base closed in 97, but hundreds and hundreds of unused bombs, also called UXO or unexploded ordnance, have been lying dormant since the conclusion of the war, left to be swallowed up by the earth. Scary. And bonus, little to no records were kept regarding their locations. Oof. So in other words, thousands of pounds of undetonated bombs are scattered throughout the entire island of Adak, making it very, very risky to dig willy-nilly. It's like landmines are just sitting everywhere yeah you just like you it's hard to know there is a way to combat this problem there is specialized equipment that can be used to detect the bombs as they pick up the presence of iron which these bombs were made with but it doesn't have to be a bomb to set off the equipment because obviously there are other items that have an iron component that aren't a bomb so it makes it kind of like a roll of the dice it's like well it could be a bomb but it also could not be a bomb and the team uses specially calibrated gear to detect precious metals for the gold which makes it even more tricky because the milk containers that some of the gold was buried in is a mixture of both type of metals so it's going to set off both sets of equipment so it's like a complete roll of the dice yeah that's that makes it tough 
There has been an ongoing unexploded ordnance removal effort on the island for many years. Tom himself has been working with the effort for over 20 of those years, and it's a complicated and really long process that involves a lot of moving parts, groups of people, and special permits. Armored excavators sent in from the mainland are typically used to remove the UXO, or the military will be sent in to do controlled blasts. Also, nowhere on the island is deemed 100% safe. In recent years, the latest removal of nine, nine separate 500-pound bombs were removed from right under one of the main roads on Adak Island after part of the roadway was washed out following a particularly bad storm and revealed parts of those bombs. That is so scary. Like, okay, I've just been driving this to go to work every day and all of these bombs, and they're super, like, they're, they, they have a very hairpin detonators, you know, like, it's just, it's so scary. Some things are better not to know. Aside from the bombs is another hidden risk, and those are Rommel spikes. These weapons of war are stakes, also known as screw pickets, that were used as a defense mechanism. Instead of having these big stakes having to be like pounded into the ground, which produced a lot of noise that could tip off enemy forces to your location, mm-hmm. soldiers twisted these corkscrew-shaped stakes into the ground, and they had super sharp ends that would stick out of the ground that were then concealed with natural vegetation. And the idea was that enemy forces mounting a ground assault would rush into them and be impaled or step on them and die or get significantly injured. And these are also found within the island of Adak. In 2012, a removal effort on the island removed nearly 3,000 of them, but they're still more scattered and concealed throughout the rolling hills and grasses of the island. And they're now have the added zhuzh of being extremely rusty it out and just tetanus central this place is a whole booby trap the island is booby trapped yeah i know (laughs) which makes it it's like it's so isolated it's so difficult to get to and there's so many risks associated with it that it makes it like Dorkstaff obviously couldn't plan for this, but it worked out in his favor that it deters a lot of people. <laughs> it did. He didn't want anyone to find it. And he literally put it on an island where people made sure that wouldn't happen. And another obstacle comes in the form of landscape change. And that impacts the theories of where most of the gold has been stashed. While Dr. Jackson had ideas of where those locations were, she wasn't the first to have thoughts about it. Samuel Arrington, a 57-year-old Texan made his way to Adak in 2008. While Adak is not a major camping destination, sometimes caribou hunters camp out on the tundra-covered island, but Samuel wasn't there for recreational camping or caribou hunting. He was a Navy veteran who was once stationed at the former Adak Naval Station, perhaps where he first heard of gold on the island. Samuel arrived on Adak Island on July 10th of 2008 after purchasing a one-way ticket from Anchorage. He was seen in town on July 15th, buying camping equipment and supplies before heading off towards Lake Betty, a six-mile hike into the remote and rugged interior of the island. And that day, July 15th, was the last day he was seen alive. His son, other family members, and friends had not heard from him and grew concerned for his safety. They knew that he had gone to the remote island for gold and a chance to live off the land, but after attempts of contacting him were unsuccessful, a full-blown search was launched. 
Samuel's disappearance prompted one of the largest, if not the largest, search and rescue operations in Adak Island's history, complete with canine units and helicopters. The search revealed a staging area on the north side of Lake Betty, along with a camp on the south side of the lake, that were both seemingly abandoned. Adak Police Chief Daryl Tannehill described the entire terrain as rugged country and, quote, probably the worst hiking conditions I've ever seen. After weeks of searching, nothing more was discovered and the operation ceased, with sporadic search efforts conducted throughout the following years. Then, in June of 2014, two U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service employees were conducting a bird study in the area when they discovered human remains at the base of a steep ravine, approximately a mile and a half from Lake Betty. It is thought that Samuel fell while navigating the steep terrain and was injured severely enough to not have been able to climb back up, and he died of exposure. The town had dwindling funds, not nearly as much as what was allotted for the initial search, and as a result, the recovery mission was comprised of Tom and just two other men. The remains were fairly well preserved despite the years that had passed, as the body had neoprene waders up to the chest. As a result of this and the precarious location of the remains, the difficult-to-access place, Tom and the two other men had to section the body in three to remove it from the difficult location at the base of the ravine and carry it out of the backcountry. What? What a brutal job. What a brutal job. I feel like at that point, wouldn't... I mean, I I understand recovering a body, but maybe just make that their resting place. I don't I, know. I'm not sure what ended up... If they flew the remains back to his family. If I was um, that family, I just... I would be like, don't send them home like that. You know? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not sure but what happened. But who knows? I mean, that's... I just... I can't imagine being the person who has to do that job. Well, Tom was one of them, and he is one of the main characters in this Netflix series. He makes a, a lot of appearances. Oh, wow. And he tells the story uh, from his experience doing that. That's yeah. awful, I feel. I mean, if that's what needs to be done to bring someone's family member home, and that's what the family wants, and you get that, God, rescuers just don't get enough credit, man. If you are. They don't. And also, like, Tom is like a jack of all trades, honestly, for this island Mm -hmm. because it is, it has such limited resources and there's, you know, there's with 45 or so people, like, he kind of has to have a little part in everything. Like, you would never, the town mayor (laughs) for my town would not be doing a body recovery. You know what I mean? It's just like, I think a lot of credit is, is due to him. Preliminary idea the remains was based on identification in a wallet found at the site and later was confirmed to be that of Samuel Arrington. The reason Samuel chose to set up camp around Lake Betty is unknown, as Dr. Jackson believes that the gold would not be that far into the interior of Adak. She believes that with limited time and manpower, it doesn't seem logical that the men would haul 3,000 pounds worth of gold miles into the center of the island. Dr. Jackson had a theory that Dorgstoff split up his treasure, which wasn't really his, Mm -hmm. and buried it in different locations, multiple locations, and based off of the geography of the island, both current and past, as well as the fact that Dorgstoff likely knew this area pretty well due to his experience of seal hunting in the area. With these pieces, she pinpointed two locations on the island to conduct the team's search. The first being Sweeper Creek, somewhat near the site of the first find, once ran from a cove on Adak Island far into the interior of the island. But over time, 
The creek shifted and in areas has been covered up completely, like with entire roadways or fill dirt. But the thought is that Dorgstoff transferred the gold, or at least some of it, from his ship into different rowboats and sent those rowboats up Sweeper Creek. This would have allowed the men to get further inland and have access to more area of land that isn't just directly on the shore. And while much of this general area has changed, there is a physical feature in the form of a large hill called Red Bluff Hill that has remained in the same spot. It seems likely that Dorgstoff and his men would have been able to pull up near it using the creek and then navigate behind it on foot, which would have provided cover from anyone searching from the sea. So she's like, it's a pretty good, like if I was Dorgstoff, this is what I would do. So that's kind of like her first inclination of why she wanted to focus the search there. And it is also somewhat near the paths between the Quonset huts that were constructed. And while they were dismantled after the war, the paths, like I mentioned before, are still visible to LIDAR tech. And that gave them a good starting point because there were some that kind of transected this this area. Even more promising was the discovery of a Russian Orthodox cross etched into a rock found by Dr. Jackson, a sign that the team took as some sort of marker clue left behind to indicate the presence of a gold stash nearby. Detecting around the area came up with their first exciting find, a tin can. And while it was crushed and empty of any coins, it was promising because this can was manufactured pre-1900, which th they could tell by looking at it on site by how it was soldered with a tin lead alloy while modern cans are crimped. So there was like a difference in how tin cans were manufactured and pre-1900s it was the soldering technique which this particular can had. Mm. So they're like, okay, this is good because this isn't from the army or military. This is from before that. So while this was promising and everyone was excited, it's like, what the hell happened? Like, did someone Where's find the this can? Why is it empty? Yeah, did, <laughs> did someone find it and empty it and then just like throw the can back? Or, or, or what? You know, Dr. Jackson didn't think that was the case. She points to the land, the landscape change once again, because the issue with Red Bluff Hill is that a large portion of the top of it had been completely removed with excavators during the military operation time period, and that dirt had been used to fill in other areas of the island, meaning potentially an untold number of gold-filled tins and milk jugs could have possibly been torn up and tossed and scattered throughout the hill or moved completely to a different spot entirely. So she thinks that this particular gold can was just torn up with excavators, the gold coins are scattered everywhere, and then whatever was in that top portion of the hill has been literally removed and placed somewhere else for filter or other construction projects throughout the island. So now do they have to figure out where it was moved to, the top part of the hill? Yes, so she does that. <laughs> she has her work cut out for her. And she's like loving it. She's so pumped over this. This is her forte. To get an idea of where those locations may be, she had Jay and Burke construct a makeshift soil probe to obtain varying soil samples from the Red Bluff Hill and other locations where fill dirt and stone had br been brought in from other locations, aka the top of Red Bluff Hill, to help with either drainage or make the ground level. There's a variety of reasons why they would have brought in fill dirt. And by calculating the soil depth, analyzing soil layers and soil composition, and then cross comparing those soil samples with soil from an undisturbed area on the island, such as the Seven Doors of Doom, which was a nuclear weapons storage facility used during the Cold War, that area had been completely undisturbed, which gave her a good standard of like what undisturbed soil looks like. So by doing all of these things, she was able to narrow 
narrow down an area near the mouth of the bay that used dirt from the Red Bluff Hill. That was in a completely different area. <laughs> that is, science is wild. Science is really cool. And it's just so interesting that how it can be utilized to solve mysteries like this. Yeah. The second location that she had pinpointed was an area called the Bay of Waterfalls. A very isolated bay 10 miles from the town of Adak is a five-hour journey because it's only accessible by boat. The location of the bay would have provided the perfect place for Dorgstoff to slip his ship into to be hidden away from prying eyes. Dr. Jackson and Brian used a submersible to scan the seafloor for exactly where Dorgstoff may have anchored. Because Adak Island is part of a volcanic island chain, the seafloor is comprised mainly of fine sands with minimal areas of rocky seafloor where the captain would have been able to anchor to hold his large ship. So they're scanning, like, just the amount of thought. It's like, okay, well, logistically, we're not going to just go and scan this area if he couldn't have anchored here. So they're like looking at the seafloor. Where could he have anchored? And it's kind of like coming up as a no-go for a while until they finally find a big rocky pile at the bottom of the seafloor. And then they look based on there where on land that correlates to where they would have sent smaller rowboats onto shore to bury and then they start searching there. And then they're like, and his feet were a size 11. So then we measured how many (laughs) steps a size 11 shoe would take before they would get tired of carrying. (laughs) I swear to God that that's like what most of the show was. I'm like, oh my God. Like, and I mean, I don't want to like shit all over the show because obviously I'm doing an episode because of it. Mm -hmm. And it, it is really interesting, but it was like a lot of reaches as far as like, Oh, okay. I get the line of thinking. And some of it is very practical, like with the soil samples and all of that. Mm -hmm. But other things, it's like, that's a lot of what ifs and like just kind of speculating. Yeah, lots of speculation. Either way, they conduct a search on the land in this Bay of Waterfalls for a while. They even camp out there overnight and it ended up being a bust. Only Rommel spikes were found scattered throughout this isolated part of the island, but the team didn't end their expedition entirely empty-handed. The entire expedition was under a pretty large time constraint, which I did not mention before, because the winter weather was approaching and the ground was starting to freeze. Oh, which would deem digging pretty difficult to do. And while Brian and Dr. Jackson were finishing up at the Bay of Waterfalls, Jay and Burke were more determined than ever. They're like, our window is closing. This is the best opportunity we've ever had, the biggest leg up we've ever had to try and finally find this after 30 years of wanting to. And they started just like digging and searching all night. Like they pulled all-nighters going throughout this isolated area where that red bluff hill dirt Mm -hmm. was transferred to. And they were skinning the area. They were pulling all-nighters. They were there like three, four in the morning. And their efforts paid off when their detectors pinged the signal for precious metal. It took some time and additional help from their other team members in the early hours of the next morning. But under a several hundred pound rock along the shoreline of Lake Andy, a single coin was found. Just one? Minted in 1861, the 22-carat $10 US coin with a Liberty head on one side and an eagle on the other turned out to be a perfect match from the previous discoveries from 1943 and 1959, deeming it a part of Dorgstoff's treasure. And everyone freaked the fuck out. 
in celebration. I mean, it's exciting. You found one piece. But this is along the area where they believe that everything got disturbed and scattered. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of... So they're on the right track. They're on the right track. They're like losing their mind. They're like, oh my God, we finally found it. And so they continue to sweep the the area. They're like, oh my God, like this is it. And they just knew there was going to be more in this area. And then boom another hit on the detector and it was a crushed and mangled tin just like the other one found on the top of red bluff hill but when they shook it around it had a single gold coin minted in 1879 at the bottom another perfect match for dorgstoff's treasure and the team was hyped they were like raise the roof we did this it. is it we're rich we didn't die trying how much is each coin worth millions one yeah. coin is worth millions at this point like because obviously a historic value and everything like that okay i'm cool with one but sadly oh no this is where the story ends wait they found two for now they found two and this is where the story ends for now because the area of the finds that they uncovered abuts a completely restricted area of the island that is sectioned off by high chain link fences with large, bold, no trespassing signs because this area has an untold amount of UXOs piled up and hidden throughout it. Of course it does. So this is like a specific area. Like obviously the whole island has bombs scattered throughout that people like are unaware of and it's just kind of like, oh, there's one. You know, let's take care of that. But this section of the island is like a total, absolutely not. Danger zone. So no one is able to gain access to the area without high-level security clearance from the military. And as a side note, the team did investigate the location of that second find in 1959. Remember, I briefly mentioned it. It was when they were building the housing community. The the other gold coin find was found. Yeah. (laughs) So as with the 1943 find, the exact location of that 1959 find is unknown, but it was narrowed down to about a 120-acre area adjacent to the coastline at Kulik Bay, which is a mile east of the first location. And they did investigate it. Obviously, they did their due diligence there. And there's more details in the show. They didn't find gold, but they found something really interesting. And it was a human finger. And at first, the team was like, this is perfect. Because a tactic that a lot of pirates used in the past to conceal treasure was they would bury their treasure and then they would bury a body over it in hopes that if someone was to happen to come across it and unearth a grave, they would not disturb it, dig further. Yeah. They'd be like, oh, this is a grave. So they're like, oh my God, this is perfect. Like they buried a body on top of more gold. But it's just a finger. But it was a single finger. So no other human remains were found at the location. But after some investigating, because this finger was very old too, like it, or so it was the skeletal remains of a finger. should say it wasn't it's a perfectly preserved finger (laughs) (laughs) yeah so the team determined it was most likely the result of what's called sealer's finger which is a bacterial infection that afflicts the fingers of people who hunt or handle seals as a result of a bite or a cut it can also be contracted by exposure to untreated seal pelts and according to the state of alaska section for epidemiology they define it as a finger infection associated with bites cuts or scratches contaminated by the mouth blood or blubber of certain marine mammals so historically in dwarfstoff time seal finger was treated by amputation and just leaving so it on really, the ground and just leaving it, I guess. <laughs> like all right we're uh, we're down a finger just leave it here Throw it out. So even though it wasn't significant as far as a treasure find, it was really cool because... It's a historic finger. It's a historic finger. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I would have been like, this is the best thing I've ever found. Not the gold that's worth millions of dollars per piece. Yeah, well, that's close second. You guys have the gold. I want the finger. As long as I can keep the finger, I'll be payment enough. ADAC Army Base and ADAC Naval Operating Base National Historic Landmark is operated, of course, by the National Park Service, but ADAC Island is also part of the Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge, and this refuge extends across nearly 5 million acres, and its environment includes more than 2,500 islands, islets, spires, rocks, reefs, waters, and headlands that is a travel equivalent of taking a trip from Georgia to California. That's how large this is. National Wildlife Refuges. Wow, that's very large. So obviously, Adak Island is a National Historic Landmark, but it is also part of a larger wildlife refuge. So I thought that was pretty cool. And of course, like I said, this entire show on Netflix should be taken with a grain of salt. While there is some solid historic information and the treasure is clearly real. The show is extremely dramatic and sensationalized, in my opinion. And I wanted to know if it was kind of like just my feelings or if other people were feeling this type of way. So I kind of like looked up what people thought of the show. Mm -hmm. And viewers had mixed reactions to it. Some were saying that it was clearly scripted and certain scenes were staged. But regardless, the story of the Dorgstaff treasure is true. And the situation of Adak Island and its community is very real. And just as a huge disclaimer to end this episode with before anyone goes and adds digging on Adak Island to their list. Digging is strictly prohibited now on the island and anyone caught digging will be prosecuted. After they did it? Well, they obtained special permits and obviously they were working with the government and different military installations and things like that on the mainland for the show purposes. But like if you just go and think that you can metal detect anywhere on the island, you're wrong and you'll go to jail. So don't. <laughs> the government wants the treasure for themselves. Yeah, Where I was going to say the military bomber friends. <laughs> Get us out there. We're ready. <laughs> yeah, if you think that this treasure is for the taking, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's only for certain special people and it's not us. And it's not but us. it's cool to watch unfold and hopefully um I didn't see any I also tried to look up if there was any talk of a second season coming and anything like that and I'm not sure if that's in production or is even ever going to happen or not. Maybe it was just a one-off. I mean, exciting. They found, they actually found something while they were there. Allegedly. I, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical now because you say it's dramatized. I'm like, did they find something for the show? They just and like plant placed it. a well, couple that's... little coins there to make, make it seem like they actually found something. That's what a lot of people are arguing. They're oh, like, really? There's just I haven't no seen way. it, They're so like... I'm just making things up but i mean like obviously like some of it would be you'd have to go through some shit especially the first find of the two that they found just the single coin under the rock it was on the shore like they were scanning around and it was under like they had to use a truck to remove this rock it was so heavy like they Mm -hmm. had to chain it up to a truck to move it um because the the coin was in the sand underneath it and it's like it's not impossible to plant something like that obviously but it's just like a lot of work and a lot of people involved in this ruse and I I don't know like I said it's not impossible but I would like my heart would like to believe that it's real real. me too and I hope they're millionaires now if they went out and found this and I just I'm just so curious if it's something that will be funded again in the future in the next few years to fund uh, ADAC's community and just because the future of the community there is just such a 
a question mark. And Mm -hmm. if anyone has been to Adak Island or has relatives that live there or has lived there before, like, please reach out because that would be so fucking cool. It just seems like a world away, you know, to hear firsthand experience there. Yeah. Yeah, that would be so cool. And what an interesting place, just the way you described it with all of the remnants of history that's still there. And I I love treasure episodes. I'm I'm not really a treasure hunter myself. I'm like a watch from afar and watch it unfold. I can't really picture myself out searching, but I like to hear of other people doing it. You like to watch Outer Banks, but you wouldn't be in the group. Yeah. Of Outer Banks. What are they called again? The Pogues? The Pogues. You wouldn't be a Pogue. Yeah. I would be... I don't know. If you're not a Pogue, you're like the (laughs) shitty, bougie. The like snooty, rich ones. That's you. Yeah, you'd be the rich ones. If you had a choice. If I had a choice, if I had a choice, I would want to be bougie and rich. (laughs) But nice, but not not in the way they depict them. I would want to be nice. Well, that's like Sarah. Sarah was that. Oh, a kook. A kook. Yeah. Isn't that what they were called? I think so. I don't know. Either way, she switched sides and so could you. You know, like you could have a foot in each side. I don't know. Things didn't really work out that well for her for a lot. A long time. Yeah, she had a rough go. Yeah, she had a rough go. (laughs) She like almost died. I I don't know. Yeah. So anyways. Okay. Well, that's it. Thanks for coming to Alaska again with me. Thanks for taking us there. Love Alaska. Love treasure. Treasure episodes are really cool. And this was a lot of fun. And I think you were right at the beginning where you said it's more lighthearted. For the most part, it was more lighthearted because the history on it that's really dark was so far away that it felt more lighthearted. And Samuel Arrington did lose his life. And like the more that here's just the last little thing that I just thought of. The other thing about the show, I'm like shitting all over the show. (laughs) You are. (laughs) Someone's listening and they're like, that's my favorite show. I don't like, how dare you? I produced that show. But in the show, they make it seem very clear that Samuel Arrington went to ADAC specifically to find this gold. And when I read more about him in different news articles and statements from his family members and his son. It was more like, yeah, he may have heard of the the treasure. He could have had knowledge of it. But it was more like I got the vibe of he wanted to live somewhere secluded, try to live off the land, and Alaska is known for gold. So he was going to like find gold in the traditional sense versus digging up pirate gold. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he wasn't necessarily after this treasure. Yeah, like it made the show made it seem like cut and dry. That was why he was there, period. Mm -hmm. But like, I just didn't get that sense from other sources. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just kind of like, I don't know. I just kind of didn't know how to feel about that with like how the show made him seem. And it's not even like a bad thing either way. Like even if he was there doing it just for the gold like fine yeah but if he wasn't it's just kind of weird to paint him well you certainly haven't light. sold the show so I know, everyone's like glad not- <laughs> we, you told us the story because the story is really interesting i don't know if i'll go watch the show now but the story was really fun yeah i told you eight hours worth of content in one so you're welcome thank you and uh we'll see you next week in the meantime enjoy the view but watch your back Bye, everyone. Look for treasure. Good luck. Bye. Bye.
Thank you so much for joining us again this week. If you have a trail tale or story suggestion, send us an email at stories at npadpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at National Park After Dark and on Twitter at npadpodcast. Join our Outsiders Only community on Patreon or Apple subscriptions to listen ad-free, unlock monthly bonus episodes, and exclusive content. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you are supporting our show. For our exclusive discount code, and source information from today's episode, check out the show notes. For more information on our show, our book recommendations, merch updates, and more, visit our website at npadpodcast.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe from wherever you listen to podcasts.